This is the America Builds Podcast, and I'm Will, a prior service U.S. Marine and ex-venture capitalist, and I'm going on a journey to find those who engineer, build, manufacture, and move because they have the courage to get off the sidelines and execute. Matt, thanks so much for being here, man. It's like a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I've known you for a couple of years and we'll get into actually originally how we met because I think it's kind of interesting when I was investing. But first, I just want to say that like in the military, we use a phrase like underwater basket weaving to describe something that's just like kind of crazy and like nobody does it. And I feel like another version of that could be mining on an asteroid, (laughs) which sounds like something you wouldn't actually do. Like any reasonable, rational person would not assume that's true. But yet here you are sitting in front of me as somebody who mines fucking asteroids. How did you come up with that and how high were you? (laughs) So, you know, the surprising thing was, is there's actually no drugs involved in the decision to go mine asteroids. (laughs) Um, Anyone on the uh, tap table has heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not an easy decision to go after a big dream like this, but I truly believe if you want to build a great company and you want to really change the world and not just say it, you have to take on ideas that other people think are fraught with either error or fallacy or... I've been tried before and failed. And I think when it comes to something like asteroid mining, Hollywood has done a great job of making it seem fucking crazy and sci-fi and like only nut jobs go after it. But the reality is, is it's probably not as cool as Armageddon and something we truly believe we can do. In fact, if we really look at government sponsored missions, like to be clear, we've pretty much done this before. The only piece that we are adding to the puzzle is actually the refinement in space, which we'll get into it. I'm sure we've launched our first mission. We've proven this out. but When it comes to it, like we have done as a human species, every single part of asteroid mining before we have gone out to asteroids, we've landed on them. We've been able to take regolith from them. We've brought that back to earth and studied it. So from a physics perspective, this is a hundred percent doable. This is not in the realm of sci-fi at all. But aren't they fast? What do you mean? Are they fast? Like, I feel like an asteroid is like going pretty fast. Doesn't it like pass the earth and you're like, well, there it goes. It'll just keep going for trillions of years. Like, how do you pick one? How do you speed up to it? How do you land on the damn thing? I mean, you know, and then also I'm concerned that there's so many asteroids whizzing by earth that we can be mining them. Like, why aren't we getting hit by them? So first off, NASA's doing a big study on if we're going to get hit by an asteroid, right? Like we are all concerned about this projected to be when we talk about what are called near earth asteroids or the asteroids that are close to earth. So not the belt, not the ones way out there. But the ones close, it's projected to be about 10 million of these things. We've only identified about 1.2 million, about 12% of them. So there's definitely an issue with, and I mean, this is why you see a lot of funding going into asteroid discovery and making sure that like, we're not going to get hit with one. To give everybody a little bit of sense that listens to this podcast, most of these are small. So if we do get hit by one, they're not going to be world ending events. In fact, in most cases, they'll break up in the atmosphere and you really won't have an issue with them. They are all going really fast. You know, when we talk about space and relative frames, like it's always hard to actually quantify how fast they're going. We're also traveling around the spiral galaxy in the Milky Way, right? We're also going very fast in different directions. But relative to Earth's speed, we can access a lot of these things. We've done missions before. They're not that much faster than Earth. And I think the better way to think about it is how far away they are. And to give you a sense here, we're going to be traveling about 10 million miles away from Earth to go visit these things. So about 30 to 40 times farther than Earth to the moon. So they're actually not that far away either. Oh, sorry. I'm just like in shock that like, this is somehow believable. It's like a 10 million miles period. It's like awkward silence. Like, okay. I guess when you're in it every day, you just start to convince yourself it's, it's accurate and true. We got a lot of fucking prove out as a company. We got to go do this. We, show we can send a commercial low cost probe out there. There's a lot of challenges ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, 
How do you approach, like, I mean, I've started a company before and, and like when I think about, well, how do I go get funding? I want to put together a, a game plan that seems reasonable and rational and calculated and measured and obtainable because I want investors to think that this is like possible. How exactly do you like sit in front of an investor and say, it's going uh, 25,000 miles an hour and it's uh, 10 million miles away, but don't worry, we'll catch up and we're going to land on it. Like, how do you actually approach the issue in, in educating the market, if you will? There's actually no difference in the way you described it to the way I do it. I think there's just a lot more physics behind the way that I do it. But I mean, you still have to show your work, right? And so we went out to even raise our seed round. We went out there and we said, here's a target list of asteroids we want to go after. Here's the first order trajectories to get to them. That means we'd have to build a craft of this size with this much fuel. Here's how much power it would need. Here's what the time frame would be. We did all of that math ahead of time. It wasn't just going there with a pretty slide of an asteroid and say like, we're going to go mine it for all this metal and see what it is. That would work with a VC. Like, oh, have you seen Interstellar? It's exactly like that. You know, they're like, done, $10 million. You know? To some of them, I'm sure. But also, you know, Will, like the VC market has changed a lot. As you know, oh, interest yeah, rates yeah, yeah. gone up and like that, that free money has disappeared. And you really got to show your proof and your work and all of that math behind showing you can do it. And even in the early days, hit some very quick technical milestones to show that it is feasible to do. One of the things we did first before we ever raised money for asteroid mining was show that we could refine an asteroid, right? And we worked with a physicist out of UCLA. We went to this like crazy fucking lab, put a piece of asteroid in there, and we got out some platinum. And we we're like, hey, here's a system we're starting with. Here's a starting point that we're going after. And it's getting those little tiny milestones right up front that show people, hey, these guys are serious. These guys have a plan to go do it. And even though we think it's a very small chance they'll pull it off, if they pull it off, like we're mining the fucking universe, right? This is yeah. probably the most lucrative company ever created if we can do it. And yeah. I think to an investor, that's an amazing investment to go make. I mean, we could return your fund 10,000 times. That's a great way to raise great. the next yeah. fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it takes forever, it still fucks your IRR. So, you know, just FYI. <laughs> well, we got to be as quick as possible. And we know no, that. And that's, you know, the thing of speed doesn't change. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like venture is a long-term asset class, but yet one of the key measures is like, how quickly do you like, capture value it's so fucked and like ironic yep. so how do you choose an asteroid i mean is there a database of asteroids that we can just kind of peruse yeah, there actually is it's called the jpl small body database you can actually pull it up online and just look at a whole bunch of asteroids orbiting around different bodies and see what they look like so first off talk about the type of asteroid we're going after so we're going yeah. after what are classified as m type asteroids or metallic asteroids these are essentially pieces of iron in fact in arizona there was an impact crater you can go visit and you can see one of these that hit the earth you can actually pick up pieces of it. Now, in the 70s, I think they made it illegal to take them home, so you can't do that anymore. But you can go see this fucking crater where a metallic asteroid hit the Earth. There's, there's quite a, that it? Behringer Crater? No, it's called Canyon Diablo is the asteroid's name. I have one actually, Will, right in front of me. And since nobody else can see this on video, it's not going to be helpful. This is Canyon Diablo. This is from Arizona. And this is a piece of M-type meteorite that I bought that from illegal? a collector. You this just said it might be illegal it, to have it. <laughs> it was picked up before 1976 or 7 or whatever, oh, yeah, okay, worked, okay, according okay. to the collector. <laughs> we essentially went after all of these with the Colorado School of the Mines. We published a paper on this. We looked at about 300,000 different meteorites, and we said, if we get an M-type, we're fairly consistent that these are going to have very high ore concentrations of the platinum group metals. And so, from our perspective, we've got to go to an M-type asteroid. That's number one. Number two, we've got to be able to access the asteroid. Not only for the first mission that we go to it, but in subsequent mission. It does no good to find an asteroid that's 100% gold and be like, okay, great. In 200 years, we can go mine it. Like, nobody cares. We'll all be fucking dead by then. So we have to make sure it's accessible multiple times. 
this is probably the biggest risk posture of the company to make this even a little bit scarier is human species have never been to an M-type asteroid. The only reason we know they exist is because they hit the earth all the time and we call them meteorites. But we have theories on how to model them. We have theories of how to do telescopic imagery of them and see what we think they are. The first mission that will go to an M-type is the NASA Psyche mission. It's going to Psyche 16. And we have really high confidence Psyche is going to be an M-type asteroid. We have discovered something new on every asteroid we've showed up to. I mean, when OSIRIS-REx went to Bennu, that thing was made out of little pebbles. And nobody thought that was the case, right? It was a major scientific discovery. So hopefully there'll be no new major discoveries. We will show up to it and it'll be full of platinum and we'll mine it and make a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting for the listeners here. Before we started recording, Matt and I were talking about Arizona State University and an event that's hosted there by NASA. I'm just looking this up right now as we speak, the Psyche mission. And it says that this is a, uh, a mission that's led by Arizona State University of, of all places. What is the connection between ASU, NASA, and this program? So Lindy L. Tonkins is the PI of the NASA Psyche mission, this mission to go out to an asteroid. So there's quite a few people at ASU that are very well-versed in Psyche, very well-versed in both the mission dynamics itself and the asteroid and the scientific stuff they're going after. I believe one of the sensors is made there as well, the gamma ray spectrometer that's flying on Psyche. So ASU is very entwined into the asteroid mission as a whole and seeing these things through. And like, it's a super exciting mission for me just as a science nerd. It's even more exciting for me as someone who's going to try to mine an asteroid. Now, the bummer with Psyche is it was delayed by a year. I believe some problems with the spacecraft. And uh, so the travel time to Psyche increased dramatically. So it's going to be a little bit farther out than I think everybody was hoping. So hopefully we'll get the first images of an M-type, us being Astroforge, and the second people will be the Psyche mission, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, just for the record... I live maybe two miles from where Lindy works, so I am going to reach out to her and have her on the show. That'd be really cool. She's amazing. She's been very helpful to us as a company. I mean, she is one of the best resources we have. And anytime you start a company like this, like, look, me and my co-founder, Jose, well, as you know, I've been around rockets for a long time and done this, and that's all great. I'm not a planetary geologist. I actually know nothing about asteroids. So being able to call people and say, help us, has been just a huge benefit for the company and kind of propelled us forward in a great way. Yeah, that's incredible. So let's talk about the process of actually landing on an asteroid. I'm still like actually shocked. Like I need to figure out like how every part of underwater basket weaving works. So when you catch up to this asteroid, how do you actually enter the atmosphere of the asteroid? What are the first and second and third kind of priorities of work of mining this asteroid? And then how do you get off it? Can you take us through that process? First off, I would say this is always the most challenging part to people. I think that don't study this every day. Don't think of it as a planet. There's no fucking atmosphere. These things on average, I mean, we're going to just make up a number. They're about 100 meters in diameter. They're not very big. These are really small little rocks floating around in space. In fact, the planetary gravity is going to be higher than the actual asteroid gravity in some cases. So there's not really even gravity, for better sense of a word, to do it. So you don't necessarily land. You dock with them. Right? You're going to fly alongside them, slow down, and essentially touch the surface. Now, we have a couple theories on how to attach to the surface. The most prominent one being that the solar winds will cause them to be magnetic, and we can essentially stick. And that's what we're investigating with some detail here as we go through it. And that'll be confirmed you know, when we go out and do our mission number two and make sure that that is the case. But essentially, we'll stick to the surface, and that's it do kind of our mission, do a refining in place. And then, as you can imagine, leaving is actually really easy. We're just on a 100-meter little ball floating in space. There's no gravity. Like, just do a small thruster firing, and you'll start to go away. And so, you know, NASA has done a lot of these deep space return missions before, so we understand the trajectories to get back to Earth. And essentially, the technique we use is we smack into the atmosphere. 
We don't go into any kind of, you know, orbit around the Earth. We just smack into the atmosphere and we use the air to slow us down so we can actually land the craft. So if you're taking something out of the asteroid, can you also be putting something into the asteroid? I'm sure as somebody's thinking about how to, like, break apart asteroids if they are in a collision with the Earth, right? So it all comes down to mass that we can take to the asteroid and mass we can remove from the asteroid. And there's fundamental limits on that as far as what we can afford to do or what the rocket sizing is and things like this. So putting something into the asteroid usually doesn't make a lot of sense. Essentially, if we're going to do something like save us from getting hit by an asteroid, we have to think about it as converting electricity from the sun through solar panels into some way to remove regolith to steer the asteroid off course. Our refinery kind of does that naturally because it's always going to throw away the waste. Right. And we can eject that waste in a different direction and change the course of these asteroids. But it's still really hard to do. We're talking about hundreds of millions of tons in some cases of dirt and we're throwing off grams. So like this thing can take a really long time to change a course. You know, it really depends on the size. So you've got this history of working at Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic. Are you a space engineer? What is your background academically? So I have a master's degree in electrical engineering, and I really focused on a lot of algorithm design in the early part of my career. Got it. Okay. And I guess that's it. Like, it's always weird. I don't know what you want to call this guy. You know, that's what I did. But you have a history of working at these aerospace and space companies, and then you spent some time at Bird. And we originally met because you had started this company, and I forget its first name, but originally it was going to be undersea water vehicles. And then I think you entered correct me if I'm wrong, but did you enter YC and it was almost like six weeks later or so it was like, you want to pivot back to space. And it sounds natural because that was kind of like originally where you, I believe Jose had come from. Is that true? And and can you tell us a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, look, me and Jose both kind of had a similar background. We both built rockets. Now I did it at Virgin. He did it at SpaceX, both very early in those companies' formations all the way through. And we both met each other at Bird Rides. And it was interesting because I think we both left for the same fucking reason, which was, Look, when you start manufacturing rockets, it gets a little boring and you just want something new in life. And that's what we had done. And Bird at the time was the fastest growing startup in history. Obviously, fast uh, the decline side as well. The hill was two-sided. But we wanted something new. And I think it's the human nature of the grass is always greener. We got to Bird. We're working there for a year. And like a year in, we're both like, dude, we build fucking scooters. Like, let's go do something different, right? And so it took us a little bit to get to the end goal of saying, we truly both love space. We're truly very passionate about space, but I'm not passionate about boring shit in space. And I think a lot of companies, which are totally really good and viable companies are taking pictures of the earth or, you know, doing communications or building satellites. Like that just doesn't excite me. I wanted to push farther. And I wanted to say, if you dreamed a little bit bigger, if you said, fuck it, I'm going to go into deep space. What can you do? And I think the clear-cut answer there is go mine asteroids. Now, we did get into YC as the submarine company, and actually we pivoted to this company on the day we started YC. So this company officially started on January 10th, 2022, the day that we kicked off Y Combinator in the winter 2022 batch. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it's extreme going from like undersea in the environment to deep space attaching to an asteroid. What was the tipping point when you were thinking about undersea vehicles that you were just like, this is going to be another boring shit kind of job. It's like scooters, but under the sea or whatever. Was there some event that occurred that you were like, I got to go back to space? Yeah. I mean, the event that occurred was like in any of these industries, what do you do if you're going to go run a company? Well, you call customers. And so I called a metric shitload of customers. In fact, my list was over 3000 people long. We Mm -hmm. talked to a whole bunch of people 
And at the end of the day, we realized like there's some small business opportunities here that we were very close on some contracts, but like those contracts at small market caps, they weren't going to be big. They weren't actually going to make this a company. At best case, this was a 20 person small business. Yep. And on top of that, the ocean's really cool when you go like scuba dive and look at tropical reefs. Like the area we were going to in the ocean is kind of fucking boring. It was called the Twilight Zone. There wasn't a lot going on. It was just once we kind of built a submarine and like had that initial excitement of doing something new wore off, I didn't really wasn't passionate about it. And when those things happen, you got to say to yourself like, okay, cool. I can either waste my life doing this. I can go get a job or I can just take the little bit of money we have left and go big. And so I chose option number three. And I talked to a lot of other founders and they tell me about their pivots where they're like, oh, we were building an iPhone app and we switched to a computer app and we thought it was crazy. And I actually think it helps a lot of people to hear it sometimes saying like, I completely pivoted my company from about the most extreme cases from going underwater to going to space. And I called every one of my investors when I did it and everybody said, fucking go for it. Like they were, I think a little shocked at first. And I had a couple people when I said like, I'm going to pivot to asteroid mine. And they're like, what'd you just say? Can you repeat that? But everybody was behind us. They did it. And we turned this into a real company that's got some real traction. And I think it has a real chance to make this work. Yeah. Let's talk to some of the founders that might be listening here. You're considering a pivot. You have a conversation with your cap table to socialize the idea with maybe the one or two or three largest investors. What if you had somebody that said no? Do you redeem them their cash? Do you say, tough shit, you're in? Or how would you approach that as a founder if you had more resistance? So I would say this a couple of ways. I actually wouldn't socialize your idea with the top three people on the cap table. If you're going to pivot your company, go fucking pivot your company and then tell the investors, I tell them you pivoted the company. And there's no legal bearing here, but I think it's always reasonable to give somebody their money back if they don't want to participate in that and do it. You also got to go in with your shit. You can't just call them up and say like, I'm going to go look for UFOs. Like you have to go to them with a business plan and doing this. And I mean, me and Jose really spent two weeks before we even called anybody just between ourselves saying, number one, is this even fucking possible? Number two, can we convince ourselves it's possible? Because I can go to anybody and say, like, I'm going to mine asteroids. What does that actually mean? There's a lot of details there, and you got to put in a lot of effort to go do it. But then tell investors what you're going to do. Investors are either there to help you, and that's why they're putting in their money, especially at the seed stage. A lot of investors in the early stage are really betting on founders and betting on your track record. And they're going to trust you no matter what you do. And if they don't, then get them off the cap table because they're probably the wrong people to have behind you anyways. Yeah. And how do you balance being excited about being a founder and running a company and, and doing something that is shocking to people, right? Like mining an asteroid or underwater basket weaving. And then how do you know you've got the actual obsession to be a founder? I mean, you've never mined an asteroid in your life. How did you know inception of this business when you pivoted that mining an asteroid was something you were going to dedicate your life and your entire being to for 10 years, especially in this case, plus versus it just being cool and you know you were excited to tell people that there's a shock value and you get something out of that some sort of capital out of that i think there's a misconception here where people have talked to me a lot and said like i don't know if i'm super passionate about any one idea i think first and foremost you have to be a little crazy as a person regardless and you have to be have kind of a really addictive personality to what you do but the reality is well until you go do something you're not going to know if you're super passionate about it or not yeah. I start off with the submarine thing. I thought I was going to be super passionate about that waned very quickly. I start off with Astroforge going after asteroid mining and I'm always like deep space, but I didn't know. And I've become much more passionate about it as time has gone on. So sometimes I would say this, like, don't overthink it. Just go fucking do it. Right. Like you just have to try. And I think so many people in this world, they're too scared to take the jump, just jump and figure out how you're going to land when you hit the ground. 
Yeah, that's so interesting and such great advice. And I have a friend that failed to do that. They kind of had one foot in and one foot out. And of course, the company never launched and that really sucked for him. And, uh, but I think it's scary for a lot of folks, especially if you're married and you've got kids and which is actually, you know, you've got kids, right? I'm married and have kids. And I think that, you know what, at the end of the day, I give my wife all the credit in the world because when I started this company, especially when I pivoted the company, I said like, there's a real chance that we're like homeless in a year. So like, get ready. And she's like, cool, we'll just go live with my dad. And like, that's the partner you need behind is just saying like, okay, cool. You know what? If we get there, we'll figure it out until then. Don't worry about it and go worry about this. And like, you have to have that support to go do this. And again, I always say this, you almost got to be a little bit dumb to be a founder because the math doesn't work out for this, right? It, there's no way in my mind says, I went through all this education. I have all this experience. I can go get a job making a shitload of money at all these places, but I'm going to pay myself less and go for a dream. And like those things don't always compute. And so you almost have to violate your own logic to be a founder. Yeah. I think that's why some of the greatest founders come off as a little bit crazy or a little bit insane because they're able in their mind to violate common sense logic and do this. So let's talk about Jose. I've met him, I think, twice now. Obviously, super nice guy, smart, etc. I mean, there's reasons why you partnered with him. But let's talk about the relationship between founders and especially ones where maybe you're both technical by nature and cover some of the same ground. How do you work through issues with Jose? How do you stay motivated? How do you solve problems? What's your decision-making process? Tell us a little bit about that founder dynamic and, and why do you think investors invested in the two of you? Yeah, I think that when it comes to founder dynamic and how you do this, I will say this. I think the one great thing that me and Jose do is we're not scared to call each other out at any given time. Mm. He's not scared to call me. I'm not scared to call him out. And like you have to because the reality is you're going to fuck it up. As you scale a company, you're going to get things wrong. You're going to get your team dynamics wrong. You're going to piss people off. You're going to structure things incorrectly. You're going to make mistakes. And the second you start blaming people for it, instead of just confronting them, being like, hey, man, you really fucked this up. Like, let's come up with a plan so we don't fuck this up in the future. How do we get better at this? And you're constantly improving. That's the only way you're going to be successful. So many founding teams start off with like, I'm going to be CTO. You're going to be CEO. We never talk to each other. We never do anything. Here's our lanes. And they end up just hating each other. And you see this all the time. You have to constantly scale yourself. You have to constantly reassess your job. I like to say that every three months, I have a completely different job. Sometimes I come in here and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do for the day. Sometimes I come in here and I'm like, I need to hire 37 people to support me because I'm going to die. And like that oscillation happens every day. And it's a little bit less for Jose because I think his role is a little bit more defined, but it still happens at a great level. And all I can say to that is you got to get better every day. That's your only job as a founder and nothing else really matters. All of those other things are details that you have to try to figure out and test and see what works for your company. Yeah, in my personal experience, as well as the experiences that I've been able to witness firsthand, there's a lot of love and respect and forgiveness for founders and folks that don't have a a base level of respect for one another tend to lose it over time and then have a breakup. And do you approach it the same way with employees or are you quick to fire an employee who's not pulling their weight versus call them out and attempt to correct it? So this is one thing that really matters on scale of a company. And I think just transitions at a lot of discrete points. As you start to get a bigger company, as you start to become viewed more as the top of the pyramid at a company, when you're three people, like who fucking cares? Every, you can talk with everybody. You can figure it out. If somebody sucks, you can get rid of them really quick, whatever. If you have a hundred people and you start doing that behavior, like it comes off very differently. People will get scared. They'll get timid. They'll go find other jobs. And so You have to just adapt, Will, and I will say this, that there's no right answer here other than 
every step of the company is different and you have to realize that. And as soon as you identify that your company is viewing you differently, you have to change. And then as soon as you identify that they're viewing you, you have to change again and you have to change again and you have to constantly be super self-aware and change. And this is why things like coaching for CEO are so prevalent because it's very helpful to get an outside viewpoint on how your company is viewing you, how the employee base is viewing the company and going forward. The other thing here is you have to hire leaders and delegate and trust them to do their job. So it doesn't become, do I fire people quickly anymore or take forever? It actually becomes, what does the leadership team do? What do the heads of those departments do for their department? Because if I go in and just come in one day and be like, um, I don't like you, you're fired. I don't like you, you're fired. That's a great way for my company to just be like, this dude's crazy. I'm leaving and they'll just all leave. So yep. you have to always balance those things and scale up and really you have to enjoy building an organization. You have to enjoy trying to figure out what is the optimal path at every time. And the honest truth is, as soon as I figured out the optimal path, we've hired more people and it's changed. And so like that optimal cool. path is changing 24 seven. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I think that like most people have looked at the economy now and they've looked at the market. They know that hardware is getting just completely slayed. It's hard to fundraise. You mentioned it earlier. How is that affecting you? What part of educating the market do you play as CEO? I mean, are you spending most of your time talking to investors and educating them and trying to keep, I guess, fuel, i.e. money, close to the company? Or are you really engaged with customers and focused on figuring out where that goes, despite what the market's doing? Depends on what week you talk to me. I would say that the last couple of weeks, I've been really engaged with customers. There's a lot of interest for this tech and some of the things that are coming out of this mm -hmm. tech from other companies and other organizations. And it's great to see that. And that's a thread I want to pull on deeply. And the government's done a lot of research in this area. We'd be stupid not to go listen to those experts and take what they've learned and put it into what we're doing. And so it's important for me to go out there into industry, go out there into the commercial sections, talk about what we're doing and see how we can form partnerships or whatever that looks like. At the same time, you got to do the same thing on the investor base, right? And really make them understand what you're doing. I think the difference is with the hardware company, or especially a deep tech company like this is you got to talk to investors for a while. People need to understand your business and understand what you're doing. This isn't a B2B SaaS company where they can come in one day and be like, we hit the 1 million ARR mark. You should give us X amount of dollars at a Y valuation. Yeah. That doesn't work in this, right? There's no growth rate. There's no difference. Like you have to really believe that me and Jose can pull this shit off and that we can do it. And if you do, it's pretty easy to say, I should put a lot of money into this company. And yeah. if you don't, you don't make an investment. So my job is to really teach people and really show them like, here's all the risks. And I'm very upfront about this with investors. Here's our concerns. Here's what we don't know about. Here's what we do. Here's the risk we've bought down. Here's what we've solved. Here's the problems. There's nothing to hide here. And that, that's kind of how we do it. What is the greatest risk to this entire game plan that you have? The greatest risk to the entire game plan that I have is money, 100%. And if any deep tech founder tells you that the greatest risk they have is not money, they are lying to you. That is number one, as always. Mm -hmm. The second greatest risk is the refinery. Yeah. We got to be able to refine this damn asteroid. That's the only part that nobody's ever done before. We got to be able to do it efficiently at an industrial scale. And that is something we spend a lot of resources and a lot of time developing to make sure that we get that right. Super interesting, Matt. It's really inspirational to see you do this. I can't thank you enough for sharing those insights and, and also talking about your approach to businesses and partnerships. Really cool. Before we end this, I'd love to do a quick lightning round. As I typically tell guests, try to respond as quickly as you can, but we're not trying to put anyone in jail. So you can be a little thoughtful about <laughs> the knee joke reaction. Oh, never done a lightning round before, Will. So let's do it. Okay. So what's a daily ritual or habit that you have that kind of keeps you grounded? Go exercise to the point where I feel like I'm going to die. Go exercise till I'm at that area where like, 
I am so burnt out that everything else seems minute to what I'm doing in the daily, right? One of the best ways for me to relieve stress is to have my body be so tired. That, like when somebody comes to me and says there's a massive problem, I can have a cool head for it. Dude, my knee hurts so bad. Like, that's fine. Let's go figure this out. But at least you can walk. It's a hugely benefit to have that kind of physical exhaustion that's going to happen so that mentally you can stay a little bit more relaxed, at least for my type of personality. All right. So interesting. I'm glad that took a positive turn. <laughs> All right. What's one non-space related thing that you'd like to achieve in the next decade? I want to run hundred miles. I want to do a hundred mile race and finish it. That is one non-space related thing I want to do. I want to see how far unathletic fat body can go before I totally die. And like, that is the plan. And so I want to just see if I can actually do it. I feel like it's this challenge and this plateau that not a lot of people get to, or people think is crazy. I just want to see if I can make it happen or what happens or how far I can go before, like, I have to go to the hospital. Yeah, so I get it. That's so my goal you, in the next 10 years. So are you a David Goggins fan then? David Goggins, he's a little bit Hollywood, but, like, I love the way that he hits on some key things, which is, especially as a startup founder in life, like, cut out all the bullshit. Stop worrying about this. Stop worrying about that. Just go do. Just suck it up and go do. And as soon as you can do that, it makes life a lot easier. You know, don't get worried about things. Don't have anxiety about things. Just stop being a bitch and go. And like, that's what you have to do in life, especially as a startup founder. And to be honest with you, the people that aren't that and are scared about it are not successful founders. I listen to a lot of podcasts on founders and get a lot of their history. And you have this one common thread of like, they are tough people because they have to be. And if you want to be successful, you have to kind of fit into that boat. Yeah. I think that's going to be the name of the episode, man. Stop being a bitch and go. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, All right. Last two questions. Favorite space movie of all time? I think I have kind of the PC answer here, which is Spaceballs, because it's just like an amazing fucking movie, right? As you go through it. I guess at the end of the day, that's my favorite space movie. There's not much more to it. Actually, I'll say this, like apart from movies though, I really love some of the like mid nineties documentaries. Like HBO did that big series from the earth to the moon and things like that, that are just these like mini documentary series. That's actually what I really enjoy. And that really tells you the true story of how this shit went. It's not all Hollywood. It wasn't all easy. Like people fucking died. And uh, you had to pick up the pieces and figure it out and say like, cool, we fucked up. Let's move on with our lives. And I think that's really hard for people to realize. And it gives you a good insight into how space really works. Last question. And I saved this for last with all of my guests on the show, because honestly, I think it's important for people to hear. Give us a piece of advice that you have, that you hold close to your heart, that you've earned in scar tissue because you have just absolutely fucked this up in the past and now you're like i'll never do it that way again this is this key piece of advice the key piece of advice i have and i tell my team this all the time just get fucking better every day if you make a mistake that's fine don't make it again get better every single day figure out what you can do it's really hard i think for people just as a human species to ever admit you're wrong i mean this is a common thread throughout all of history yeah but as a founder you have to and if you don't you will stay at your same level and you will stay there I've made plenty of mistakes in my career and I'll continue to make plenty of mistakes, but I want to attempt to get better every single day and use whatever tools I have to improve so that the next time you stop making them and that's how you advance in life. And so I'll tell anybody, I don't care what mistake you met. I don't care what you did. Just try to get better for the next day. That's all you can do in life. And that's all you can do as it goes on and just do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Matt, thanks again for being here, man. If there's somebody that could uh, successfully pull off mining asteroids or weaving a basket underwater. I think it would be you, my friend. Hopefully we'll pull it off. Well, stay tuned for our next mission. I think it's going to be a big shock to the world when we pull it off. Awesome. Thanks for being here, brother. Take care.